Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. 24-year-old Mitrice Richardson vanishes after being released from a remote sheriff's station in Malibu, California. 13 years later, her family and community continue to fight for justice. This is her story. Maitrese LeVon Richardson loved to dance and perform. Growing up, she competed in dance, cheerleading, and pageants. Always a standout performer, wowing audiences and judges alike. Her mom, Latisse, remembers Maitrese's ability to dazzle while on stage, saying, quote, she could literally just jump into the air back-to-back five or six times and just hit that split in the air, unquote. But even more impressive than her ability to do multiple back handsprings was her passion to help others. She graduated with honors from Cal State Fullerton in May 2009 with a degree in psychology. According to her mom, Maitrese, quote, fell in love with the idea of understanding how the mind works, unquote, and had plans to pursue graduate studies in child psychology and ultimately earn her doctorate in the field. Her mentor and friend, Dr. Rhonda Hampton, describes Maitrese as wise beyond her years and someone with a natural, innate compassion, innate empathy. Maitrese spent the summer after graduation spending time with her girlfriend of two years, Tessa Moon, and working a lot. That brings us to Wednesday, September 16th, 2009. Today's different. Maitrese doesn't have dinner with her 91-year-old great-grandmother, Mildred, like she does every single Wednesday. The two are roomies living in Watts, a city in South LA, and Wednesday dinners are their thing. A way for them to spend time with one another, catch up in the middle of their busy weeks. I love that for so many reasons. And I think that it really speaks to Maitrese's character as well, how much she cared and made sure to make time for her great-grandmother. And that isn't easy when you're caught up in the day-to-day grind. When you say day-to-day grind, that's exactly what Maitrese was experiencing. She worked three jobs. That girl was a go-getter and super, super busy. She interns for a forensic psychologist, go-go dances at an LGBTQIA nightclub in the evenings and works at a shipping yard in Santa Fe Springs. And on this particular Wednesday, she leaves her shift at the job in Santa Fe Springs early, heading home to check in with Mildred. Great-grandma and great-granddaughter spend a few minutes chatting before Maitrese tells Mildred she's driving 40 miles away to Malibu for a spontaneous solo trip. 
At 5 p.m., she walks out the front door, and it's the last time Mildred would ever see her great-granddaughter alive again. It's now about 7 p.m. My Trace has been on the road for two hours. The sun sets over the water as she arrives at Joffrey's in Malibu, a well-known restaurant on PCH, the Pacific Coast Highway, with entrees like lobster and swordfish. It has a large, bright sign that entrances my trees, drawing her close like a moth to a flame. You can't turn right into the lot from the direction she's driving. It even says so on the restaurant sign. So she drives the 400 feet past it before making a U-turn to pull into the parking lot. The lot attendant informs Mitrice it's a valet parking only, and she agrees. He excuses himself to help another patron with their car, and when he returns, Mitrice's 98 Civic is empty. He expected her to be waiting to exchange a ticket for her keys. He's confused, wondering where she could be when he spots her in his personal vehicle, parked nearby with the door open. He confronts Mitrice wanting an explanation for the reason she's sitting in his car, sifting through his CDs. He asks her, hey, what are you doing in my car? She responds, I came here to avenge Michael Jackson's death. The lot attendant startled by the answer and doesn't know how to handle the situation as she continues speaking in disjointed sentences. The interaction makes him believe that Mitrice may be in an altered mental state, possibly under the influence. He finally gets Mitrice out of his car and into the restaurant, warning the hostess that Mitrice, according to LA Mag, quote, seemed pretty weird. Mitrice instructs the hostess to, quote, keep an eye out for a girl with tattooed arms, unquote, named Vanessa before requesting a table for one. She's seated next to a lively party of seven. Their laughter filling her with excitement as it also fills the room around her. Mitrice orders a $65 Kobe steak and an ocean breeze cocktail before abandoning her dinner and joining the group next to her without an invitation. The patrons find the action to be unusual, but they're good sports about it and don't send her away even when the staff checks in with them. Mitrice discusses astrology and reads their palms. When asked where she's from, she tells the others that she's from Mars, that her mom was Mother Earth and that the ocean was calling her, hence why she ended up in Malibu. The group finishes their meal parting ways with Mitrice and a memorable evening as they exit the restaurant. Mitrice is alone once more before she decides she too will be leaving. The manager stops her at the door asking her how she'd like to pay for her $89 bill. To which she explains that the group paid for her bill, but it turns out that they hadn't. It takes some time, but the manager convinces her that that isn't the case. Mitrice accepts what he's telling her, casually saying, quote, I'm busted, what are we going to do about it? While simultaneously emptying her pockets in a gesture to prove that she has no money. In fact, the only thing she has on her person is her license. As the manager tries to sort out the payment issue, Mitrice's disjointed speech persists. She experiences trance-like episodes as she stares off into the distance and remarks that she could settle her debt with sex. This is the last straw for the manager. He's not getting anywhere trying to talk to Mitrice, believing her to be intoxicated or under some sort of influence. And he's genuinely concerned for her safety. Things have escalated far beyond what he believes to be his responsibility. And he deems it necessary for someone else to handle the situation. 
So he instructs a staffer to contact the Malibu Lost Hills Sheriff's Department. The staffer follows orders. I actually found a resource with the 911 audio, which means I get to play them for you in today's episode. In the portion of the audio you're about to hear, the female staffer informs the dispatcher that Joffrey's needs assistance with an individual who's experiencing a drug-related episode while refusing to pay their bill. Lost Hill Sheriff's Station, Deputy Shalette, I can help you. Hi, I'm calling from Joffrey's restaurant in Malibu. Yeah. Um, we have a guest here who is refusing to pay her bill, and we think she may, I mean, she sounds really crazy, she may be on drugs or something. Um, we are wondering if someone could come by and pick her up. Okay, well, what's the address there? It's 27400 Pacific Coast Highway. Meanwhile, the hostess wants to help my trace out of this escalating situation asking if she can call someone to help pay for the bill. Mitrice gives her her great-grandmother Mildred's phone number, and the call goes through. Mildred offers her credit card information over the phone, but Joffrey's manager can't accept it. I completely understand that some establishments just have a straight policy of not taking cards over the phone ever, but do we know why with Joffrey's they weren't accepting this card over the phone? I wondered that too. But the restaurant's policy doesn't allow payments to go through without the cardholder's signature on the receipt. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. However, Mildred can't drive to Malibu at the moment to sign the receipt. The woman's 91 years old, 40 miles away, and she'd have to drive in the dark to get there because it's around 9.30 at this point. The manager suggests faxing over her signature, but Mildred doesn't have a fax machine either. It feels like they're hitting dead end after dead end at this point. That's when some helpful staff offer to pay Mitrice's bill. But the manager doesn't allow it. Mitrice's erratic behavior concerns him, and he believes she could hurt herself or others if she gets behind the wheel of her car. He insists on following through with his plan to involve authorities who are still en route. Mitrice's great-grandmother, Mildred, remains on the phone as all of this is happening and she's flabbergasted by the entire situation, but even more so distressed about the well-being of her great-granddaughter, who's still seemingly unfazed by the very real possibility of being arrested. According to LA Mag, Mildred begs Mitrice to listen to her, saying, quote, you put that phone close to your ear. They're getting ready to take your ass to jail. But it doesn't sink in for my trace until responding deputies Frank Bauer, Armando Luero, and John McKay walk through the restaurant's door and up to the 24-year-old. It's in this moment that my trace finally seems to grasp the severity of the situation. A witness even claims that my trace appears scared for the first time. Who can blame her? Law enforcement officers with their guns holstered to their hips can be intimidating, especially if they're there to talk to you. Heck, I know I would be intimidated. The three deputies do their best to put Mitrice at ease. Well, getting to the bottom of things. They start by asking basic questions like, have you had much to drink while you were here? She responds, not really. We know she ordered an Ocean Breeze cocktail with her dinner, but did she have anything else to drink? No, that's the only drink she ordered. Staff didn't serve her other beverages and she wasn't seen drinking anything else while at the restaurant. The staff backs up her story for the time she spent there. Like I said, nobody served her any other drinks except a single serving of Ocean Breeze, but, and it's a big but, they don't know what she was doing before she arrived at Joffrey's, and the one alcoholic beverage certainly doesn't explain her unusual behavior. 
the interaction with the valet intruding on the dinner party at the table next to her, claiming to be from Mars. On top of that, not being able to pay for her meal. Because of this, the deputies have to be sure Mitrice is sober before they allow her to drive away. The three deputies then take Mitrice out to the parking lot where Deputy McKay sifts through the cluttered contents of Mitrice's car, looking for her wallet after she asks him to do so, suggesting her wallet with money in it may be in the car. While Deputy Brower conducts a field sobriety test, checking her pupils and pulse to determine whether she's fit to drive. They conclude she's sober and once again, she's asked if she can pay her bill for dinner. She can't. The restaurant won't accept her grandmother's card over the phone. She doesn't have anything on her except her license and the clothes on her back. There's no evidence of her cell phone, purse, etc. anywhere. And Deputy McKay, who sifted through her car for her wallet, can't find it. He doesn't come up empty-handed, though. The deputy finds several half-empty bottles of liquor and a small bag containing weed in the center console of her car, a misdemeanor resulting in a ticket. And if that was all they had against her, they would have allowed her to walk away. However, that doesn't happen because Joffrey's manager presses charges against Mitrice for, quote, defrauding an innkeeper, a decision that haunts the manager to this day in the form of his own personal guilt, public harassment, and countless death threats. Because many believe it to be the catalyst for the events that cost Mitrice her life. Now that the charges have been pressed, Mitrice's vehicle is impounded at a lot down the street from Joffrey's. She's then loaded into the backseat of a cruiser and driven 15 miles away to the Malibu Lost Hills Sheriff's Station. The 25-minute trip takes Mitrice up winding roads without streetlights into the hills of Malibu. Miles from the ocean that lured her to the city in the first place, the Joffrey sign that beckoned her inside the restaurant, and even farther from her family at home in South Los Angeles. Speaking of Mitrice's family, does anybody know that she's been arrested yet? Well, remember, Mitrice's great-grandma Mildred was on the phone while a lot of the restaurant encounter took place. Right. Once the manager presses charges against Mitrice and she's been taken into custody, Mildred contacts Mitrice's mom, Latisse, informing her of everything that's happened. Latisse's initial shock and confusion gives way to worry as she considers everything she's been told about Mitrice's behavior this evening. Talk of being a Martian, not paying her bill, getting arrested. All of this is so unlike the Mitrice she knows and loves, and she's desperate for answers. It's around 10 p.m. when Latisse calls the sheriff's department to get the details. Mitrice still hasn't arrived at the station, but the deputy on the other end confirms that she's en route. Latisse tells the officer that her 10-year-old daughter is fast asleep, and she's about 60 miles away from the police station. You know, that's about 40, 45 from the restaurant, and then the 15 between the restaurant and the station. But Latisse continues that she'll drive out to Malibu if Mitrice will be released tonight because she doesn't know the area and isn't in possession of her car. In fact, Latisse makes it very clear that she's concerned for Mitrice's safety if she's released into the night in this area she's unfamiliar with. She literally says that she doesn't want to wake up to a story about a lost girl whose head has been chopped off. Latisse presents this statement as a joke, but there's an underlying sense of fear in her voice when she says it. The deputy can't seem to answer Latisse's questions or provide any more information, but assures the worried mother that her daughter will call once she arrives at the station. 
I was able to find the recording of this particular conversation, which we'll play for you right now. I am calling. I'm a little frazzled right now. I understand my daughter is being brought into the station. My Therese Richardson has they made it to the station yet, and she's been booked. Okay. Is, is, do you know where she's coming from? Uh, it's some restaurant out in Malibu, and I, I didn't even think to get the name. The okay, manager's yeah, name the is... Only, the only place we have somebody that's in custody that they just announced on the radio that they're coming up is from Joffrey's in Joffrey. Pacific Highway. It's okay. the only female that's being brought up to the station as we speak. They actually just put it on the radio right before you called. Okay, okay. I'm I'm her mother, oh, okay. and are you guys going to book her and then release her on her own re- recognizance tonight because it, it's, it's dark, she doesn't have a car, and I don't want her wandering out. I'm, I'm totally just taken aback because this is so out of character for her. Yeah. And you'll see when she comes in, she, she's well-spoken. I think the only way I will come and get her tonight is if you guys are going to release her tonight. Yeah. If, if going to be held in custody for some type of arraignment tomorrow, mm-hmm. then I will wait until tomorrow. She definitely has no place, you know, I mean, she's not from that area, and I would hate to wake up to a morning report, girl, yeah. lost somewhere with her head chopped off, uh-uh. so I guess I would have to come and get her, oh my gosh. Yeah, we're in a great hills. The only thing is, at least in the station here, she will be separated, so nobody's going to be with her, uh, so at least that's, you know, the plus thing, so you don't have to worry about her safety. Uh, oh, yeah. No, I feel safe with her being yeah. in, in custody. It's being released, but I'm worried about it. It's, it's crazy out here. All right. Well, then I will more than likely call and touch bases with you guys a little bit later. Okay. Um, yeah, she'll call you as soon as she comes in, too. Seven hours later, on the morning of Thursday, September 17th, Latisse calls the station the minute she wakes up. It's about 5.30 in the morning, hoping to get more information about her daughter's situation. But she soon finds out that her worst fear has come true. Maitrice was released a couple hours after her booking around 12.15 a.m. There's some discrepancy in the resources about the exact time. Some say 12.30, some say 1.30. But for this telling, we're going to stick to 12.15. And despite her being released, she never called her mom like the deputy assured her. Okay, I and I'm sure our listeners have a ton of questions. So they released Maitrice without being able to call anybody? Or maybe she chose to not call anybody? Did they give her a ride somewhere? For example, to the impound lot where her car was? I need so many more details. There's a lot to unpack here. So I'll start with my Teresa's release and go from there. According to the LA Times, the deputy who spoke to Latisse over the phone, quote, never informed the watch commander about the call and that her mother had offered to pick her up. This is the first of many missteps in the handling of Maitrice's case. Another misstep is the arresting officer's failure to document Maitrice's erratic behavior in his paperwork, despite that being the motivation behind her arrest. Yes, the Joffrey's manager pressed charges against Maitrice for, quote, defrauding an innkeeper. However, like I explained earlier, multiple resources claim his motivation for doing so was based on Maitrice's behavior and preventing her from getting behind the wheel of her car, thus putting her life and other people's lives in danger. The deputies needed to have a reason to detain her, and they used this as it. But because of Mitrice's spotless record and the fact that the deputy didn't include any mention of Mitrice's mental incapacitation, nobody at the station had any idea Mitrice may need further evaluation regarding her mental stability. They could have held her for 72 hours under a 5150, but it didn't happen. 
This led to the jailer releasing her because they didn't have any legal reason to hold her. The docuseries Disappeared covers Mitrice's case, and according to the series, deputies, quote, encouraged Mitrice to voluntarily stay put in her cell until someone could pick her up, but she refuses. Instead, she signs a promise to appear at the Malibu courthouse on November 16, 2009, and is free to leave on her own accord, without a cell phone, wallet, or any idea how to get home. CCTV footage from the jail shows Mitrice exiting the building and walking into the night toward Agora Road. Now that Mitrice has been released, Latisse contacts friends, family, even acquaintances, hoping someone's heard from her daughter. But nobody has, including Mildred. In an interview for the Disappeared docuseries, Latisse explains how she was feeling at this point, saying, quote, So panic began to set in because I hadn't heard from Mitrice but I wasn't ready to accept anything horrible at this point, unquote. So she turns her panic into action, calling the Malibu Lost Hills Sheriff's Station a second time that morning, hoping to file a missing persons report. You can feel her anguish as she speaks with the deputy who does his best to convince her a missing persons report isn't necessary, yet. It's an infuriating conversation and pretty long, but I want to show everyone how hard Latisse fought for her daughter from the get-go. Here's the clip. Lost Hill Station, Baumgartner. Yes, hi. My name is Latisse Batten. I called not too long ago regarding my daughter, Mytrice Richardson. How long before a missing person's report can be filed? Is it 24 or 48 hours? That's long. Well, it depends on the circumstances, but uh, um, I, I didn't take your call, so I'm not familiar with it. Did she just not return home after going out? She was arrested last night. This is the first time she's been arrested. Um, she's in an unknown area mm-hmm. that she's never been in. She's without a vehicle. Nobody can find her. And, and where was this at? Where was she arrested at? Your your facility. Her name is Mitrice Richardson. Okay. Do Do you know if she's if she's here now or was she released? They said she was released. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what time was she released? Um, at, at just shortly after twelve a.m. Yeah, normally I we wouldn't I wouldn't recommend doing one uh that soon. Um Right, what is the time frame? You know, I I guess probably 24 hours would be reasonable. I mean, okay. if if there would be some some mitigating factors, you know, where you know, you would suspect maybe something you know, well, not yeah. right, right? She doesn't know the area. She's never been in your area before. Where, where, do you, where does she live? She is unfamiliar with that area. Do she you think she not... possibly could have gotten a bus home? No. And... Oh, listen, my child has never ridden a bus. Okay. No. Right. She would not know how to ride a bus. <laughs> I would probably wait till you know, early this morning. And if she doesn't turn up, you can certainly call. I don't suspect anything um bad happened i'm concerned because uh, well first of all i thought they were going to keep her overnight because she was highly intoxicated mm-hmm. um something something is obviously going on with her have you she talked to the jailer and yes 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 i have he said he tried to get her to favor because she was an adult they had to let her go i i believe that she is highly depressed um and she, she she's in a depressive state 
you know, it could be possible that maybe she, I mean, there's a lot of options and I, a lot of possibilities and I don't think all of them would be, um, you know, something dire, but I can certainly understand your fears, you know, being your daughter and all that. Well, um, I think she's depressed. That's what has me. Is that what, that's worried that. you more than just her. Okay. That and the fact that she's in an area where she doesn't know where she's at. Yeah, does so, she take medication at all? No, she. I I, I believe it's a state that she's in right now because of just the the weird activity that's been yeah, going what, on. What's her name? Day. What's her, her name? name is, her name is Matrice okay. Richardson. Okay, and your name, ma'am? Latisse. Okay, Latisse. Here, here's what I want you to do. Let yes. get, why don't you wait a couple hours? And, and give us some time to kind of, I'll go back and talk to the jailer and try and get a timeline of when she was released and, you know, make sure she's not asleep in our lobby or anything like that. And then once you give us a call back in a couple hours, if she hasn't shown up okay. or made contact with you, then maybe we can do something for you, okay? Well, Atis figures out what her next move is. She can't help but rack her brain for anything that could have alerted her to Mitrice's unusual behavior leading up to her disappearance. When we hear Latisse talking to that deputy, I couldn't help but take note that she said, I think my daughter's highly depressed or my daughter's highly depressed, something of that nature. And it immediately made me wonder if there were any other warning signs. Up until that conversation, nothing felt like an obvious red flag to Latisse in the moment. However, as the saying goes, hindsight is twenty twenty. Going through her last communications with Maitrice, Latisse begins to notice a number of illogical text messages that she initially brushed off. For example, Maitrice sent her mother the following text, quote, Now do you know what I want to be when I grow up? Miss Mother Nature, because Miss America is a fake joke along with everything else we see. This specific text catches Latisse's attention because of the reports that came out of the incident at Joffrey's. Remember she told several people that she was Mother Nature's daughter despite hailing from Mars? Latisse also learns of an unexpected visit Maitrice made to her Aunt Lauren's house the day before she went missing. Maitrice didn't engage with Lauren because she wasn't home, but that didn't stop Maitrice from littering Lauren's front porch with stacks of her go-go dancing business cards. The front door, trees in the front yard, the floor, all were covered in these business cards. Perhaps the most concerning was the letter Maitrice left on Lauren's husband's windshield. The note is all over the place and doesn't make sense. There's smiley faces, squiggly lines, kiss marks, and several messages including Black women scorned and who is queen now, Mississippi? That's definitely concerning behavior. Something else that's concerning me is Latisse hasn't made that missing persons report yet. What is going on with law enforcement? Correct. As you know, a missing persons report hasn't been filed at this point. Due to the advice the deputy gave Latisse over the phone. However, advice may not even be the correct word either because all of us listened to that audio. It's clear the officer talked Latisse out of filing the report. Before we go any further with Mitrice's case, I want to emphasize for our listeners that the information given by that deputy is wrong. OAG.ca.gov states, quote, there is no waiting period for reporting a person missing. All California police and sheriff's departments must accept any report, including a report by telephone of a missing person, including runaways, without delay and will give priority to the handling of the report, unquote. Now, getting back on track with Mitrice's case, 
even though the sheriff's department isn't looking for my trace at this point, they may have an idea of where she is. Let me explain. Around 6.30 p.m., a 911 call is placed by a former KTLA news anchor and resident of Montanito in Calabasas who lives off Cold Canyon Road, about seven miles from the Malibu Lost Hills Sheriff's Station. The caller tells the 911 operator that there's a, quote, prowler in his backyard, and he would like authorities to come out to the property. The resident relays that he called out to the trespasser, a woman in her 20s, asking if she was all right, and she responded that she was just resting before she vanished. Here's that audio. Yeah, hi. Hey, uh, this is uh, uh, Smith at Cold Canyon. We had a prowler walking around through the backyard here, but we don't know what the situation was. I don't know if you had a unit in the area. It might do a little drive-by or something. Okay, where is this at? This is Cold Canyon, like hot and cold in Montanito. Um, and it's in the back of the house, uh, which is right where Wood Bluff hits, the, hits uh, Cold Canyon. Uh, and we just had a strange woman walk up to the backyard here. It's a fairly large property, and she was sitting on the steps right, right in the back of the house here. Uh, this is kind of a circular driveway, and the gates were closed, so we don't know where this woman came from. But she was sitting kind of sprawled out on, the, on these wooden steps in the back of the house, right against the back of the house. She's yeah. since got up and left? Uh, she's since gone, yeah. She's been gone about five minutes now. But as we thought it over, we thought maybe a little drive-by wouldn't be a bad idea. And what direction was she, she last seen headed? Never saw her. She, well, once she left, she just disappeared. Uh, we, I moved from one window to another. I said to her, I, I hollered down, are you all right? And she said, I'm just resting or something like that. Uh, but uh, she's certainly gone out of her way to get to that close to the house because the, the hiking trail is not that close. It's on the ridge. Officers respond, arriving on scene within minutes. They look for the prowler, but don't find her. However, they make a report including the woman's physical characteristics and a description of her clothes, both of which closely match my trees. Back home in South Los Angeles, Latisse's panic grows as the hours pass without word from Maitrice. Latisse decides that she will not wait any longer and drives out to the Malibu Lost Hills Sheriff's Station to file a missing persons report. As she's leaving the station, a deputy informs her that there may have been a possible Maitrice sighting in Montanito, detailing the 911 call that came in earlier. Latisse's heart is in her throat as she races to Montanito growing more concerned about Maitrice's well-being as she drives past the rugged terrain. Night's approaching. It's getting dark again, and there aren't any streetlights amongst the hills and winding roads. Since Latisse is unfamiliar with the area, it's a tough drive. She doesn't know where she's going or where to look for her daughter. Now think of Maitrice. Can you imagine how terrifying it must have been for her to be all alone miles and miles away from home in the dark? Seeing this area prompts questions for Latisse, like, how did Maitrice end up here in the first place? The family believes they know the answer to that. Latisse tells disappeared the only way Maitrice would have ended up in Montanito is if she were driven to that location. But that prompts yet another question, who? Who would have given Maitrice a ride and why would they take her in the opposite direction of her car and home? The following day, Friday, September 18th, 2009, the Malibu Lost Hills Sheriff's Station passes Maitrice's case to the Los Angeles Police Department because she lives in their jurisdiction. Investigators began their search at the location of her last sighting, the backyard she camped out at when the resident called 911. LAPD arrives at the residence, police search dogs in tow. The dogs confirm the Prowler report to have been Maitrice picking up Maitrice's scent behind the house, 
following it to the backyard of another home, onto a community trail, and heading east along Cold Canyon Road until it fades. The LA Times reports possible sightings of Mitrace near Malibu Canyon. LAPD aren't the only ones on scene. The Malibu search and rescue team is here as well. Following shoe prints along the road's shoulder, they believe to have belonged to Mitrice. The pattern matches the vans she was wearing. But the Malibu search and rescue team soon lose their trail as well, due to lots of other activity in the dirt, hikers, horseshoes, etc. Her mom, Latisse, gives more details to disappeared, saying, quote, they saw the pattern of her feet walking, and then they were running. Then, like she was just snatched out of thin air, they just disappeared, unquote. Search teams spend day after day looking for any other sign of Mitrice, but they don't find anything. Then on Wednesday, September 23rd, four days after that, LAPD homicide detectives are assigned to Mitrice's case. They drive out to Malibu towing to inspect Mitrice's car, hoping something will give them insight into what happened to her. We know it's already been rummaged through at this point because one of the responding officers searched for Mitrice's wallet the night she was arrested, but the detectives are looking for anything else that would help them understand Mitrice's mental state. The detectives end up finding her phone and wallet, which had her debit card with more than $2,000 in the account meaning she could have paid for her meal if she had only found it. But they're also in luck because the detectives find her journals in the glove compartment. Mitrice's innermost thoughts fill hundreds of pages, which they used to track her writing patterns, comparing them to her posts on MySpace and Facebook. But the thing that catches the investigators' attention is the amount of thoughts cataloged by Mitrice. It seemed to be continuous, The volume was so great that the investigators began to wonder if she had slept at all in the days leading up to her disappearance. Some sources report that Mitrice may not have slept for up to five days before her arrest. Her mentor, Rhonda Hampton, a professor of psychology, later had an opportunity to evaluate the writings, which shocked her. She describes the journal entries for Disappeared as, quote, a lot of gibberish. A lot of it was just sentences that didn't go together just grandiose kind of thinking, unquote. A psychologist working for the LAPD on the case believes that these findings prove to be evidence of Mitrice experiencing a manic episode as a result of untreated bipolar disorder. In the weeks following Mitrice's disappearance, her family faces pushback from the sheriff's department, which refuses to release the incident reports and video footage of Mitrice while in the jail. I have to ask why they aren't releasing this footage. According to the department, they're following protocol. But I can understand the family's frustration. Their daughter's missing. Then, almost a year after Mitrice's disappearance in August 2010, Los Angeles Rangers make a discovery as they inspect a marijuana farm in the Santa Monica Mountains, located near Calabasas. Mitrice's nude, semi-decomposed remains. This isn't far from where her trail went cold either. The Los Angeles County Coroner's Office never determined Mitrice's manner of death. However, authorities insist there's no evidence of foul play, something her family contests to this day. Her family members aren't the only ones dissatisfied with the outcome of Mitrice's case, though. There's major public outcry due to the handling of Mitrice's case, which resulted in an investigation. But the Office of Independent Review concluded there was no fault at the hands of the Sheriff's Department. The family then reached a settlement of $900,000 with the county, according to the LA Times. As of 2022, the investigation into Mitrice's mysterious death remains open. 
In fact, just this March, the reward for the apprehension and conviction of those responsible for her death was up to $20,000. There's also been change made to the policy surrounding the sheriff's department and how they handle situations like this. According to the LA Times, the department, quote, doesn't wait now to take missing person reports for adults. And it makes sure that people have their cell phones and personal property returned to them before they're released from jail, unquote. If you or anyone you know has information about Mitrice's mysterious death, please call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS. That's where we'll leave this episode. Until our next episode, you know where to find us. At the Murder Diaries Pod on TikTok and Instagram, at the Murder Diaries Podcast.com, and the Murder Diaries Podcast Request at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, go ahead and rate us five stars. It helps us keep the good content flowing. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Bye.